It's May 1st, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 260 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durur Bashima. Welcome to a new month, the month of May. It's May 1st. It's May Day. Mm-hmm, it is. You know, when I was a kid growing up in England, May Day was a thing. Mm-hmm. I, it's not really a thing here in Canada. Not as the, much. I think I saw like one tweet about it or something. It was today, in the Soviet Union <laughs> <laughs> and and England. I mean, it's supposed to be a workers' celebration yes. day. And there's a lot of sarcasm about the way workers are treated in Iran oh, yeah. right now based on May Day as well. Uh, but anyway, happy May Day to Thank you. Thank you. Happy May Day to you Fellow worker. Too. <laughs> um, hope uh, you guys are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. That's Pega's voice that you hear there. This is me, Gian. Today I have a special guest joining us, a man who is... A master of the night sky. I think he's um I think he's the first person we've had on the show mm-hmm. who had a planet named after him. Wow. Not so bad. Uh scientific explorer, photojournalist, uh that does such compelling work when it comes to what is in the sky above us that he has amassed almost one million followers on Instagram. Not wow. so bad for a photographer. Yeah, for sure. An Iranian photographer uh, who's now in the United States. Bawback Tafreshi. Tafreshi? Tafreshi, I Tafreshi. think. Tafreshi. Yes, Tafreshi. Bawback Tafreshi. Of the, thank you. Before he comes on, I <laughs> learned how to say his name. Uh, Bawback Tafreshi is coming up. Joining me from Boston. You know, his ideas, it's been such a, so much fun researching him because mm-hmm. his ideas and revelations about the night sky, they're, they're kind of mind-bending. Uh, and well worth your next hour. If you're out there listening, wondering if you should tune in about this scientist, this photojournalist, this photographer, uh, you really do. And I look forward to talking to him in just a few moments. This interview is part of a new series on Mondays of programming that features one big interview. So on Thursdays, it's our regular show with the opening essay with Pega and others joining me for the roundup two or more interviewees. But on this day, the focus is on one person in the Rook seat and Babak Tafreshi will be joining us in a moment. Uh, hey, Pega, the other day, mm-hmm. we were talking about whether the Toronto Maple Leafs yes, we were. could win for <laughs> hockey fans out there mm-hmm. um, or fans of losers <laughs> who never win. This is a happy day. It I mean, is. It's a happy weekend because uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs won a playoff series. They did. They Long did. way to go. To win the Stanley Cup, of course, but yeah. it was a big deal for Toronto. I feel like I need to jump on the bandwagon now. I mean, when we were talking about it last, I was saying, you know, <clears throat> I don't really follow hockey. I never have that sort of thing. But I mean, with the outpour of fans that I saw on Saturday and, you know, all this excitement surrounding this win and what could be to come. Yes. I don't know. Maybe I need kind to become a, a hockey fan. miserable weekend. Otherwise, it was raining. Actually, it's raining yeah. today, too. It's ominous clouds. It's so You know gloomy. what that reminds me of? What? Gatch Sad. You don't know what no that is, clue. right? Gachsar is a place in Iran. Okay. Check this out. Check, yeah. check, check out how I'm going to out Iranian you. Right I know. Now. I can't believe it. I was a kid, uh-huh. I was five years old, and my family, I don't know what we were doing in Gachsar. 
but we were. Uh, this is a place. Okay. It's a place. Right. I, from what I understand, from what I remember, it's it's like north of of Tehran. Mm-hmm. People in Iran are like listening to us in Iran right now are rolling their eyes. Like he, he's explaining, like it's like I'm explaining where, you know, Boston is. Or yeah, something. exactly. Uh, but, but we we were visiting Tehran mm-hmm. and then uh, we went, we took a tip, trip to Gachsad. Maybe it's a a holiday place or something or there was a I villa no or idea. something. I had never heard of it before. Yeah, I know. I'm explaining. That's crazy. I'm saying maybe it is. Ay uh, <laughs> Roham. It's oh. a, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> what, do you know what Gachsad is? Yes, it's a city uh, north of Tehran. Is it a city or it's like a town? It's a city. No, okay, it's, it's a city, city. Right. north of Tehran and people go there for basically a skiing. Skiing? Uh, not skiing, skiing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> for skiing. For yeah, skiing, yeah, yeah. okay, got And we it. go to a Starbucks and then skiing. <laughs> so, okay, well, um, uh, except they don't go to Starbucks there. But okay, so we went to Gachsad mm-hmm. And uh, this is, I mean, I'm five, so right. I don't remember very much. But I remember on the way back to Tehran, mm-hmm. it was this epic rainstorm. Wow. And I remember, this is a weird thing. You know, you remember the weirdest things the as a kid, you yeah. know? You, I remember we pulled over because the rain was so bad. Like we had to pull oh. over because it was hard to see driving right. or something like that. And so, and and all I remember is Gatchat. Like that had Were something. Were you like traumatized by this? Clearly, rain? maybe that's why. I mean, why I it's... see a, a ominous clouds and a rainstorm, which is what's happening worried. in Toronto right now. And I and I think Gatchat. Wow. There you go. What an impact, yeah. Gatchat. And, and basically, the weekend. I mean, it the it, it Gatchat at the weekend was. <laughs> I don't know if you could use it as a verb, but the weekend was Gatchat out yeah. in Toronto. It was raining the whole weekend. It's crazy, but. The Toronto Maple Leafs. They did win. Now, this is kind of vicarious for me because my team, my real team at this point mm-hmm. is Arsenal. Yes. And as Arsenal stumbles, I scurry over to the next team I can <laughs> possibly have some hope with, and that's our uh, hockey team, as well, Arsenal being my football win team. tomorrow, and I think the next game is tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, no. They've fin- who? Leafs. Oh, no, no, Leafs. The Leafs won the first round. Yeah, but so, isn't there now they're going game? into a new yeah, round. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. But there's also an Arsenal game tomorrow. But anyway, oh, okay. um, you are going to come back on Thursday I for am. our proper roundup. Yes. There's a lot going on in the Iranian diaspora. Never miss the Rook Roundup uh, with Pega Ganji, uh, yes. featuring Pe- Pega Ganji, amongst <laughs> others. Um, so, yeah, and don't get sad that, uh, don't rain on that sure. roundup. Um, we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can, you know, I bet you Babak Tafrishi, mm-hmm. not to be confused with Babak Tafrishi. I bet you Babak Tafrishi has, um, he probably has a, some expertise about what the sky looks like. In, in Gatshat. He may even know why there was rainstorms three or four decades ago in Gatshat. You'll yeah. have to ask. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. You can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, Instagram, CastBox. From our website, rookmedia.com, it's where you can watch what you're hearing. And we are going to put the video, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're listening, actually, if you're listening to this, you are uh, definitely on one of our podcast mm-hmm. platforms because on YouTube, it's just the video. They don't get to hear this brilliant repartee no, they on don't. YouTube. they miss this. Yeah, so if you go to, but if you want to watch the interview with Bob Ak, Tafrashi, Gachsad, <laughs> you just go over to, uh, that's part of his name now. Go over to YouTube and the visuals will be there. And if you'd like to get your Rook descriptions of bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. You can become a Rook member. Support us by going to our Patreon page, which you can link to from our website, rookmedia.com. You press support, support us. us 
and you can become a Patreon member for as little as a coffee uh, each month, the same price as that, uh, to subscribe and help us out and become a Rook member. We really appreciate it. I was thinking, if you are a regular Rook listener Mm -hmm. and you have the resources, look, if you're having trouble making, you know, ends meet each Mm -hmm. month, God love you. Thanks for listening to us. You don't owe us anything, you know. But if you have some resources, if you got a job, you're doing okay, you know, this this would be a, you'd be the kind of person that we would love to have as a Rook member. We'd love to Supporting support. what we do. You even made a little video. I did, I did. Yeah. That I need to put up and I was very nervous about it going up there, but looks like it, it our, did well. If you go to our Instagram, can people see it still or is it gone? Yeah, now? I think it's still up there story right now. Of Pega but... support us. Touting our Patreon Telling page. Telling you all about the Patreon page. Thank you, Pega. Thank uh, you. Go Leafs. Talk to you soon. Uh, let's get to our feature guest for the day on this Monday feature interview day. And my feature guest is a celebrated Iranian-American photojournalist, National Geographic explorer, and cinematographer who is impressive enough to have a planet named after him. It's somewhere between Mars and Jupiter, and the designation came from the International Astronomical Union. Bob Akhtafrishi is the founder and director of the international program, The World at Night. He's a board member of Astronomers Without Borders, a contributing photographer of the Sky and Telescope magazine, and a photo ambassador for the European Southern Observatory. But most of all, if you search him in social media, he's a guy who takes the video images of the night sky you can imagine. Babak was born and raised in Tehran in the turmoil of the Islamic Revolution. He became an astronomy teacher and the editor of Nojum magazine in Tehran in the late 1990s. Prior to his immigration to Germany and then to the United States, he has received numerous prestigious awards, including the 2009 Leonard Nilsson Award, which is the world's most recognized award for scientific imaging, the 2022 Royal Photography Society Award for Scientific Imaging, and the 2022 National Geographic Wayfinder Award. And right now, Bob Akhtafrishi joins me from Boston in the United States today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jean. It's a pleasure to be with you and the audience. Uh, Thank you for the introduction. It's a great pleasure to have you on the program. We've wanted you for a long time, but you've been too busy looking at the sky, it seems. Yes, um, National Geographic assignment and projects often take me to far away distances. It's hard to coordinate sometimes um, record an interview where you need a stable Wi-Fi connection. Babak, I want to ask you about scientific discovery. I want to ask you about your personal story. But I thought I would start by saying, you know, I've been thinking about you and thinking about how the work you do is so very scientific and yet it truly has a fantastical quality to it. Are you a scientist or are you a dreamer? I I love science. I'm not a researcher. I like to be that um, missing gap between the general public and science, especially using night sky as my medium because it's part of our nature. It's part of our uh, natural environment, which is unfortunately lost to many people in urban areas. And night sky as a form of nature has this great ability to connect us with the natural world, with science, with the universe, with our origin and past at the same time with our future too. So that's the reason 
it was my focus besides being truly my passion since my childhood. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the how the night sky can affect us. But um, you understand where I'm coming from. I, I wasn't actually being facetious when I say that your work has a dreamlike quality to it. Combining art and science is uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do mm. in my photography. And then bringing it together with visual storytelling, which comes from my journalism background. Um, so all these together make the image more impactful and maybe as you as you said, more dreamlike. Um, some sometimes people look at these images of um, outer space more like an abstract art. That's true because we have no sense of a scale, no sense of the content we are looking at. So it looks like abstract art and some of my images, appear in fine art galleries for, yeah. for that purpose. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you can also talk about the science which is in there. Uh, you can talk about the foreground, geology, and the natural world in general. If somebody were to tell me to, um, uh, without knowing anything about, anything about you, to just go to your Instagram page and without any context, without any writing, without any definition of who you are, and if they were to tell me these are paintings, I would believe them. Uh, and I'm I'm assuming these photographs don't have filters. You're not adding color or, uh, you know, amping up the, the resonance or something. This is actually what you see in the sky, right? This is actually what is there, but not actually what I see. So two different things. So our eyes are almost color blinded in low lights at night. Turn off the room light, for example, or just um, test it in any dark night and you won't see any color around you. You only see the colors from intense concentrated source of light. For example, a planet, bright a star, then you see the color. Anything diffuse and dark is colorless because our cone cells in the retina are not active in low light. Wow. And those are responsible for color detection you can see the color of bright aurora, for example. You can see the color of a planet. You can see colors of the stars through a telescope. But to unaided eye, the Milky Way is absolutely colorless. Still, it's stunning to see the structure and this cloud of um, the galactic region in the sky. But there is no color unless you do a certain amount of exposure with the camera to reveal it. But then the question comes, is this color real? Yes, it is real. There is a physical reason for every single color in my images, and I don't alter them. So they are true colors. Um, and I'm very conservative, in fact, to capture things based on single exposure photograph, um, because I started with film technology. And then when I shifted to digital, I followed the same old school methods. Today, we have many possibilities to manipulate images in nighttime photography too. capture the Milky Way from one country and foreground from another or daytime and right. nighttime. But I like to stay with more realistic um, approach of night sky photography because I consider it as part of nature. For example, you don't add um, a cheetah on top of an elephant in wildlife <laughs> photography. And I don't add a moon in a picture where it doesn't belong. But it does. It, but it does raise the question, uh, on a practical level: How do you know if you can't see with your naked eye? How do you know what you're supposed to take a photograph of that's going to turn out to be this amazing vista? 
Well, many beginners who start with night sky photography, they, they come up with very saturated, unusual colors of the night sky. For this question, it's a very good question to raise because if you don't know the color of the Milky Way, it could be blue, it could be red, purple, anything. You know the color of an elephant. You know, if you shift the white balance of an image um, taken of an elephant in a safari and change it to red, you know, everybody realized there's something wrong with this image or there is an artistic reason to make it unrealistic. But if you change the color of the Milky Way, nobody knows. Mm. But there is a true color based on physics. For example, we know the color of the Milky Way is pale yellow because of all the dust in the interstellar medium in the galactic plane absorbing light and making everything more reddened, yellowish like the sun setting on the horizon. That's the same effect by the Earth atmosphere, making it more orange red. So that's why we have more yellow pale to the galactic um, band. And some areas are colorless. Or we have stars, which has color based on their surface temperature. For example, if a star is very, very hot, it's usually white blue. If a star mm -hmm. is cold, it's red orange we call them super red giants star at the end of their life cycle if aurora is green it's coming from oxygen level in atmosphere if it's more um, purple and red it's coming from the upper layer so there, there is a reason for every single color there we can't simply change them if you, we keep the white balance as usual like the normal daytime temperature that we are using then we end up more or less with natural colors because, for example, in a moonlit night, reflection of light coming from the moon is from the sun. So we have the same spectrum. But if you change the white balance a lot, then you usually end up with false, uh, completely altered reality of natural night sky. Let, let me ask you about something you just, uh, an inference you made a, a few moments ago that uh, that is something you've said a few times in your work that that the night sky has the ability to give us a perspective uh, you've also talked about uh, the related idea and i love this that um, the night sky gives us a connection to past moments can you put into words what it means as an experience what you mean by that well there are two different aspects one is about time night sky is timeless it has been there above us eternally um 10,000 years ago, people were seeing almost the same night sky as today. You know, there are some movements, galactic movements with the stars around the galaxy and the sun itself and the solar system. But it takes a huge amount of time to change the shape of the constellations. And if our ancestors were seeing the same sky, it's completely borderless. It's eternal above us. It gives us a way of communicate with our origin. But at the same time, night sky is like a time machine. You look at the moon, you're looking at one second ago. You're looking at Mars mm -hmm. at least five, 10 minutes ago, sun eight minutes ago. You're looking at the star like Betelgeuse, the famous star, which is going to be a supernova anytime in the shoulder of Orion. It's from 600 years ago. Some stars you can see with unaided eyes are several thousand years ago. And there is patch of patch of little cloud, faint cloud in the sky known as Andromeda Galaxy. In fact, first observed by a Persian astronomer, uh, Abdul Rahman Sufi, about a thousand years ago. 
um, he didn't know it's a galaxy at then, but he mentioned this cloud in that constellation. When you're looking at this little cloud in the sky, it takes you back to two million years ago, just with unaided eyes. Wow. And then use a telescope, you go back to billions of years ago. So night sky is like a time machine as well. But I'd like to also share with you the second approach, the second perspective that I really love. Just before you go to the second approach. Sure. Um, that's so, it's just got my mind going. So when we say, for example, wow, the night, the night is so beautiful tonight, what we're looking at is not necessarily what is actually there in that moment. It can be a combination of past moments uh, of, of some, some that are years ago that we're actually seeing in, in that second. You're, you're seeing layers of time when you're looking at the sky. Wow. Um, layers all the way to current and all the way to the beginning of universe. <laughs> and and so to a certain extent, if all of life is about impermanence, um, the sky kind of trips us up on that because it it isn't impermanent. It's it's always been there, right? Yes, and that's that's the sense I really like because it gives you this sense of timeless life that you know we are living in one span of this huge amount of extent of time and it gives you a new sense of time in general you know time for us is usually um you know what time is breakfast what time is lunch and now time is like layers around us we can look we can go back as much as we want we can go also to future because there's some stars in the galaxy that looks like exactly like the future forecasted future of the sun uh, when the sun is dead, for example, when the planets are without this source of light. So we have all these futures visible too. Um, and that's, that's a new way to look at life. Um, and let go go to the second perspective, yeah, because it's very well connected to this change of mind about who we are okay. and what we do in, in our lifetime. Uh, when you look at the night sky, um, start with going to a national park for example where you are in canada or where i am here or somewhere in iran you're going to my favorite national park was the kabir national park in uh and bahram palace it was a caravanserai about a few hours drive south of tehran where i started a lot of my stargazing there um you go to one of these places it's usually very busy in daytime. People come for hiking, seeing sunset, but after sunset, everyone gone. And you're alone under this ocean of stars. Mm -hmm. And for some moments, you feel that connection to, to earth and sky at the same time, to past and future at the same time. You feel not only this sense of being on a planet moving around the galaxy with the stars, slowly moving with the Milky Way rising, but also you hear nocturnal species you become one part of this planet filled with life um you become one part of nature in general and then it gives you this perspective that you know we are on this tiny little planet yeah. so fragile at the same time so unique yeah um, and you become a part of a planet not a country not a city you know we are very territorial usually you know we we 
really care about our neighborhood, we care about our house, our family, our country. Um, but caring about the planet is usually the second or the last priority. And that yeah. gives you a little change in life. And over time, if you experience it more and more, it gives you a totally new perspective to life. And when you're in that moment, as you talk about, um, I'm imagining it, 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 it matters not what your status is and um, what your occupation is and, and how wealthy you are and how many uh, Twitter followers you have and all of that, right? You're just a being as part of nature. Is that what you mean when you've, you've made the case that the night sky has healing power? I mean, it, it seems counterintuitive. I, I can imagine somebody going, well, how does the sky heal us? This sounds like some sort of, you know, um, 60s hippie idea, you know, spiritual <laughs> idea. But when you're talking about it in the terms you just are now, um, it, 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 it is, again, a sense of perspective about who we are and how small all of our concerns are in, in our daily life. Is that what you're getting at? It seems that it's connecting somewhere very deep within you. And all of a sudden, you're disconnected from all the pain and news in daytime you have for just moments. And that moment fills you with energy for the rest of the time, maybe for several weeks. And I have heard it from some of the people, participants at my Night of Sky photography programs. I do several of them every year. And some people said to me, this was a life-changing experience, not because of the lessons they received, you know, that was technical, because of that moment, the moment they realized that pain is gone, all of a sudden somebody has migraine. Um, in a very recent program I had, and there were several times he came to me and said, you know, my pain was gone for some moment. So there is truly this wow. very deep connection within us to the night sky and it's very unfortunate that um, more than 80 percent of human population now live under some level of light polluted the sky because we are very much in urban areas it's a perfect segue i was just going to say um sadly here in a massive city like toronto if i look up in the sky from my downtown home I'm not necessarily going to see what you've just described. And I want to ask you what, what light pollution is and what we lose uh, with the light caused by living in urban centers. Well, we are in 21st century. Let's make this clear. We need light at night. You know, so people like me, astronomers, stargazers, environmentalists, are not against using light at night. We need that for our modern life. Light pollution is the excessive light that we just waste. Because this new technology that has been already with us for more than a century, but it's still it's pretty new to the culture because culture goes very slowly, technology is very fast and right away within us. And we don't know how to use it perfectly. So we use light not only for safety and security, we use it for advertisement, we use it for uh, decoration and art. We use it for identity. For example, lights in Las Vegas, it's part of the identity of the city. We use light for um, show off. You know, some villages make the village so bright that it looks like a city from a far distance. Then you go to the village, there are only five people living there. You know, this is very typical in many parts of the developing world. 
because the energy is now cheap and lights, especially with LEDs, are not that costly to use. We use light for even enforcement, for controlling minorities that happen in other, some countries I have visited. And when you look at all these uses of lights, there are many waste happening. For example, two thirds, two thirds of street lights is complete waste in many countries with old style street lights because the bulb is visible, the bulb is not shielded. And because of that visibility, light goes to the horizon and to the sky. And it's a lot of light going. So two thirds of all the lights we use in the street lights. And there's of course reflection that we can't control that, but we can control the bulb being visible. And then um, some sort of light is is there for nothing. You go to this vacation house, somebody's using it only twice a month on a purely beautiful lake. And it's covered with like 20 LEDs, intense LEDs, and it's on the whole night for no reason. Because if it's for safety, we can use motion sensor lights. It's very affordable now, it's available. If it's for illumination, there is nobody there to use that. So then still we have to use motion sensor or we turn it off when we're not there. So I think it's more cultural because we are as, we're not nocturnal species, you know, maybe I am, but the rest of human humanity is probably not nocturnal. So that means we like to be in a safe environment at dark from our ancestors. We feel this um, frightening environment at dark and we like to light it up as much as possible to make it bright enough to be safe mm. if we break this barrier um if we change this understanding and feeling uh, that cultural change is going to happen too and i think the best way is to bring people to places where natural night skies is still available and change their mindset right. that this is a valuable source it's not only a valuable source for connection of human being to the universe and all those aspects we talked about. It's a vital part of the environment for billions of animals, insects, even trees. You know, we have so many species that need natural darkness. Fireflies is just a very iconic example of that. As soon as you turn on bright lights, they don't no longer signal each other. Right. And, you know, fireflies signal for mating, no mating, no population. That's one of the main reasons fireflies are gone. Many people ask me, you know, we were used to see these fireflies in childhood. Where are they now? And I show them their lights. So <laughs> that's the main reason. Or migratory birds. Billions of migratory birds die every year. The, the static is just unbelievable. It's more than... Um, 4 billion only in North America per year because they are attracted by city lights to the cities. And when they come to the cities, they get lost and they usually die or hunted by cats and other predators there. Um, or they lose the couple of days on their path and they never reach the destination. Mm. Um, people start to see, in fact, in Toronto, the story happened, uh, started in 1980s. People start to see that there are many dead migratory birds around the towers, the sky towers right. in the downtown. And they were picking like 5,000 dead uh, birds from every single skyscraper in downtown Toronto. Yeah. 
during the migration season without knowing what is happening. And then the same thing happened in Chicago, also in the path of migration. And soon um, scientists came up with the idea that they are coming down to the cities because of lights, because they're using the starlight for navigation as one, one of the main ways of navigation. And these bright lights disturb their navigation system yeah. and attract them down. There's so much there that I want to uh, pick up on, but there's so much I want to get to. I don't want to, I know I can't keep you forever. That Just let me ask you one question on an individual level. Um, are you, what are you prescribing? I mean, I know what you're not demanding what people do, uh, what you say, but but in, in the context of the fact that there's these giant lit billboards of advertisement and these skyscrapers that are lit all night, does it really make a difference if I, turn off my porch, my 40 watt porch light um, after midnight each night? I mean, would you say that that's important to do? Yes, I think it's important. If you are a decision maker, if you are influential people, it's best to talk with, um, you know, local government decision makers and convince them with um, information we have. There's plenty of document available by Dark International Dark Sky Association. Their website is darksky.org. And they work with lighting industry. If you are an engineer, in, in, in the industry, you can think about that. I think it's a big responsibility for um, light engineers, in fact, because if we have um, sky-friendly lights at an affordable price, such as warm LEDs, you know, the white-blue LEDs are the most harmful to human body and many species. And they are becoming very popular because they make everything very bright. In, in fact, they're not really safe at all. Mm. So if you are on individual level, first you can help yourself. If you have one of these white blue LEDs inside your bedroom, bathroom, where you are places where you are going near bedtime, it's going to affect your sleep quality mm. a lot because we have a blue sensor in the retina um, there are cells responsible to detect blue light because they arrange the time of the body. As soon as they get intense blue light, it's a uh, representation of blue sky daytime. And they change the amount of melatonin in the body and activates our body. So we get this message from the brain after that detector sees the blue light. That's why we use night shift on our phones, for example, right. to make it warmer or right. computer. Um, then think about where do I need light? We ask, this is the first question. Do I need light here? Do I need it permanently or just motion sensor? Then second, what color do I need? If it's a medical surgery room, definitely I need white light because yellow light makes you too calm and sure. <laughs> unsharp. Um, or if it's in your room where some, somebody wants to sleep after exposing to that light, it needs to be warm. If it's a parking lot, it needs to be warmer yellow. Then we ask about the intensity. How much brightness do I need at this place? And we ask about the angle. Do I need to point it to the horizon? The worst is thing to do. And we have many of these security lights which are pointed to the horizon in order to um, cover a larger area, but they create glares for the eyes, accidents. So it's not only light pollution is not about protecting night sky alone. It's about our own safety, uh, human health, ecology and biodiversity, and saving energy. So 
it's even connected to climate change. Um, there are some research based on uh, places creating a lot of light pollution and how much contribution it has to climate change. Not only from an energy, it's also changing the atmosphere. It's a very interesting topic. I, I'm, but I I'm, think I'm, the I'm biggest smiling. impact I'm... of light pollution is on biodiversity, and it has been completely hidden. It's my new project, in fact, uh, starting with National Geographic Society. Uh, just a few weeks ago, um, I started a grant called Visual Atlas of Life at Night, and it's natural relationship between animals and the night sky and how artificial light is changing that. I'm smiling because I'm thinking about how um, at least old school Persians with the Mamuni turn up all the lights bright. You know, my parents. <laughs> it's same everywhere. Um, same in many other countries too. I think it's um, the only way we can fight this is to reconnect people with the natural night sky because they have forget about this they the, i remember when we started the tv program in iran it was called asmanishab or the night sky i added a little word after it it was asmanishab tabiat faramushade mm. means the forgotten nature right. night sky the forgotten nature and we were insisting on that because inside the urban areas we are truly disconnected many people ask me are these images photoshopped it's impossible to see the Milky Way like that. Or um, I remember once I took a group of students to um, stargazing program in the desert. And one of them on the way, as it gets to dusk and evening twilight, told me, oh, there is a big cloud coming. It's going to get overcast tonight. And I looked outside and he was looking at the Milky Way for the first time in his life. Mm. So there are generations like Gen Z and millennials. Most of them never seen the Milky Way in their life. You mentioned working in Iran, and it's a good segue into asking you uh, about a little bit about your story. And, and um, one of the things I really love about your work is that you, it's clear that you're passionate about what you're doing. You're not just, it's not just a job for you, but it's something, if I have the story correct, that captured your imagination from your preteens. What did you see in Tehran, in Iran, when you borrowed a, a neighbor's telescope at the age of 13 and that moment that changed your life forever? Yes, yeah, so I didn't have a telescope. I, I had a lovely neighbor, Kayvon Zokai. I borrowed his telescope, uh, small, very small. It was just two inch in aperture, 65 millimeters. So it's more like a toy scope, but it was good quality. I set it up on the roof. Um, something probably you didn't read on my previous interviews is I didn't manage to look through that telescope to see the moon on the first night because all my friends were more interested to look at a girl next door. <laughs> so that was the first night. But the second night, we managed to set up the telescope and look to the moon for moments I, I couldn't believe my eyes because I didn't expect to see so much details of another celestial body, body in outer space. You could see mountains, craters, uh, these vast areas of solidified lava, which we call the moon oceans or seas, and only through a very small telescope. And I, I had a book with a map of the moon. It was even more detailed than than map. And as the Earth was rotating, the moon was just gliding across the field of view. It was like being on a polar spacecraft looking mm -hmm. out of the window as you're orbiting the moon, looking for a place to land. So 
that moment I think changed my life and that simple experience can change many other people's life um if it happened in the right moment right place it can change somebody's life for sure you you become the editor of astronomy magazine in Tehran for for 10 years between 1997 and 2007 I want to ask you a question that might be strange and maybe it'll go nowhere but I I want to try it on you is the sky the night sky let's say seen the same way across the globe I mean is there and I don't just mean what is what we have the capability of seeing scientifically I mean is there international cooperation and agreement on what we see up there or is it subject to different interpretations based on the country or the region or the politics or the government in power well the idea of uh, the world at night and we have this slogan called one people one sky comes from this universal view it's like a free laboratory to everyone around the world you may work for a chemical laboratory you have a physical place you go there you're limited to whatever is available there but here we have a universal laboratory free anybody can access it if the sky is not light polluted uh, so that's why many countries preserve that not only as as a source for research but as a source for revenues uh, through something new called astrotourism People are looking for this life-changing experience, go to, the, go to different places to experience that. But back to your question, we see the same sky from similar latitudes. So in the northern hemisphere of the Earth, we see more or less a similar sky. If you go to equator, you see more of the sky, a part of the southern hemisphere. If you go to, for example, from Toronto, um, let's take a trip to South Africa. Um, to Johannesburg or Cape Town. It has a similar latitude to Toronto, but in the Southern Hemisphere, you see a totally different sky. Hmm. Now you have some overlap, which um, visible from both hemispheres, but the sky is totally new. You see constellations which are completely unfamiliar to you. So within one similar latitude in the Earth, you see the same sky. And that's how we are connected when when the new moon which is coming um thing in a couple of nights when you when the new moon is visible in the sky people in japan will see the baba pagoda then buddhists in nepal will see the same few hours later a few hours later people in iran will see it as well over mount damavan a few hours later in greece and then across the atlantic we see it here in North America. So we are looking to the same window of the universe. But is the is the interpretation of the science the same? In other words, if if uh, if American astronomers say this is what we've we've deemed is happening in and around Mars, does a uh, a regime or a government or a state that is not necessarily friendly to America, the Russians or say the Iranian regime, does it does it accept that or or are there challenges where you say well we don't accept your your science on we see the sky differently i mean i don't know if this is a stupid question but in every other way in our world there's disagreement around uh, you know there's there's little uh, international cooperation so i'm i'm wondering what happens when it comes to the sky and space oh no no yeah, they accept it because it is uh, science and in science if you have evidence uh, provable evidence then 
it's fine. Yeah, somebody else can test it, can experiment. Of course, there are debates over some fundamental questions, for example, the origin of the universe, the Big Bang theory, right. um, or dark energy. You know, something in cosmology, we have a lot of debate, but if you are working on a star, some other kind of scientists in another country can follow up your research. They can use it. We use research done centuries ago by other astronomers, earlier astronomers, even with, before the telescope, in order to understand the stellar evolution today of many major uh, known stars and how they have been changing in brightness or going under eruptions and so on. But if it's more about low orbit objects, for example, satellites, mm. then it's a different story because some of these are visible from one area and not from the other. Um, it's not completely connected to your question, but it's an interesting topic that uh, we have um, a very rapid growth in the number of satellites in the Earth in the past three years. In fact, the number has been doubled uh, from about 5,000, we are now near 10,000 satellites. Now, not, not all of them are operating, but the number is increasing because of a small satellite projects such as a Starlink and similar. And many of them are visible to cameras, to telescopes, for sure. All of them are visible to telescopes because they're reflecting sunlight, also to human eyes. And this question is raised since a couple of years ago that... Um, what happens to the future of the natural night sky when we completely dominated by sun reflecting satellites right. even some com companies are thinking about using these satellites for advertisement and you look to the sky instead of the full moon you see coca-cola you know that that's very doable at the moment the only reason it's not happening is the cost and um, some enforcement enforcement from un because there's a committee forming right. at the moment about how to use our space right. territory the biggest possible property. the biggest possible billboard use the sky yes. to promote your products yeah it's in fact you know it started in, another project happened in china and that satellite was is planning to reflect sunlight and works as the full moon the full moon which is always there because it's a geosynchronized satellite so that means it rotates with the same speed as, as the earth so you will see this artificial full moon every night. And it's for um, mainly advertising. Um, some other companies thinking about using that to increase amount of light in some areas which are in the valleys. And you know, there are so many crazy ideas at the moment, but majority of the issue coming from small um, satellite constellations because there are thousands of them going to space and not only it creates um, sunlight reflection and pollution in, in the sky, but it's also make um, space exploration difficult from sending rockets to, to doing astronauts activities, for example, spacewalk, because many of them become a space debris after a while they broke apart, they impact each other, and nobody cares about these small satellites, but these debris can be quite frightening for spacewalkers in future. Uh, but to astronomers, it's a major issue because when you're using a very sensitive camera connected to a huge telescope, every single satellite is going to be visible. I was curious, Bobak, about your, about your departure from Iran. Um, I thought maybe 
um, without getting into researching you before that, I thought maybe it was because you were limited in what you can do the same way somebody who's in a field that they just can't, you know, a, a female singer, for for example, has to leave Iran because they can't possibly do what they want in Iran. But you, in terms of astronomy, seemed to have been doing quite well in Iran. You're this editor of a magazine, you were on TV, you were on radio. You left in 2011. How much was your departure related to professional reasons? How much of it was personal? And why did you end up leaving? Well, yes, I did a lot in Iran before leaving uh, in science communication. We I uh, started astronomy reading Astronomy Magazine of Iran, Nujum. And that magazine still survived. It's uh, still publishing right now with dedication of um, the staff. It's still going on in the most difficult time. And um, that in- generated uh, interest to astronomy to many, like me, thousands of people around the country who became astronomers, some science communicators, or even staff later on. Uh, we started a TV program that was during a good time in Iran in um, late 1990s uh, to early 2000. And uh, we had an opportunity to start a science program with the help of my friend, um, who is uh, who was the producer and the original idea of the program, Siavai Safariampur. Um, that was about 10, more than 10, 15 years and generated a lot of public interest to astronomy. And there were many groups forming around the country. And that's why today we have probably the largest um, population of astronomy-related people, which we call it generally amateur astronomers, in Iran, in a whole region. If you compare it to any other country, even Turkey, Iran has much more mm. um, astronomy-active people because of this public popularization that was done in this part of um, science, but also because of probably of our cultural relationship with astronomy. We had some of the world's best astronomers in history. We had the largest observatory in Iran at the time, 800 years ago, Samarand. And that was, uh, you know, the part of proud which we are connected to it. And also the access to the natural night sky in high deserts of Iran in, in the mountains. I started my love to truly night sky in Alamut, the valley of Alamut in the Alburz Mountains, and then Mount Damavand at the same time. But back to your question, when I started this project, The World at Night, in 2007, I was still in Iran. I did it with my colleague Mike Simmons in Los Angeles. So we were in two different parts of the planet working together, and the sanctions were heating up. At the same time, we had more and more limits in the country. I realized, you know, the speed of internet was going down more and more instead of you know advancing in technology we were just limited more and more sure and at the same time i was married and i was looking at the situation of women in iran from a new perspective because i had a partner who who cared and i cared and woman life freedom which is a movement today you know it was within every one of us in the past and in the last four decades more or less to some degree. And that was another reason uh, we left the country. So the two main was this looking for freedom like any other Iranian diaspora and um, looking for a free world to do my work because I couldn't do any contract with National Geographic simply because of sanctions. I was not sure if I can access my own website tomorrow because of filtering. 
And this was an international project. You know, a lot of people were involved. I couldn't risk it. So I had to leave the country in 2011. We went to Germany because that was an office we had for uh, development of the project. And we continued for a few years. Then I moved to the U.S. because of my relationship with National Geographic. I mean, you are celebrated worldwide, but you are a prominent Iranian. And um, I'm curious how you reacted. I mean, I've seen a couple of your posts, but how did you react to the uprising that began after the killing of Masa Amini in September of last year? Well, I, I reacted to the other previous um, unrest in Iran and social injustice uh, every now and then. You know, my, my account is dedicated to astronomy and night to sky. But every now and then I had one or two posts about every every one of these issues. But when this started, soon I realized it's very different from the previous ones because I was traveling at the time for the first week or so. I didn't react at all because I was in remote areas, but I was receiving information as it goes on and on. I realized this is not the case like before. It's not going to end. This is. This is the change many people were waiting for. And as we see today, it's still continuing in new form. Um, and that was a responsibility I felt because first I realized this is the moment we were waiting for. And although my field is totally different, I have that responsibility. And second, I saw this, you know, people who are fighting for their freedom uh, in my motherland, they have no voice to share with the rest of the world. And then I realized, you know, there's so many news coming, but very few are doing fact checking and trying to abbreviate this, to summarize this in a short post with good information. I said, maybe I can do that. So I, I was contacting my um, friends, journalists uh, to, you know, fact check to find things from um, human rights watch organizations and then put them all together in one single post um, as short as possible with reliable information. So that was the responsibility I felt I had to do. Uh, but again, um, it's just one piece of a much larger puzzle sure. that needs uh, help of everyone. Are you on the radar of the Islamic Republic regime? Are you have do they have you gotten a warning or something? Don't speak. Oh, no, no, I don't know uh, about that. But um, you know, a lot of people, including leaders of the Islamic Republic, know me. I know that even the Supreme Leader was um, one of the people who were watching our programs. Mm. And because of his interest in astronomy, maybe we received a few warnings at that time about some of the topics uh, that we, we shared on the program. But um, no, I didn't receive a warning. I'm not going to travel to Iran. I'm not going to risk it at the moment. Uh, before, I was traveling every every year or two, uh, but this is a different time now. But you, you have said this there... is you have you said this has affected photojournalist friends of yours though inside Iran, which is not a surprise. What what can you tell us about that? Well, a lot of photographers, not re, not necessarily. Um, social justice photographer or political photographer, general photographers, they were arrested as soon as they were seen with cameras on, on the street on the very first day. Or uh, they were addressed and all their equipment were captured for a long time. So they had no access to equipment to do anything. 
So that's why we didn't have much images coming out from professional level. It was mainly people on phone shots because um, many of them were arrested. And the second reason we receive a lot of good images without any credit because people couldn't risk uh, you know, having names tagged to these images. And that made it very difficult for um, journalism here in, in the West because the media couldn't rely on these images. Sure. It's, a, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Let me end off with a, with a couple of maybe um, broader, almost um, philosophical questions maybe. Huh? You, you have traveled extensively and expansively across the world. What would you say you've learned from all your travels? I think I, I like to usually regard myself as a citizen of planet Earth. Of course, I care about Iran um, as my motherland country. I know every corner of Iran. I traveled almost to all the provinces, many cities, national landmarks of the country. As, as a teenager, I started doing that as part of my hobby. So traveling was the way of exploring for me. And I, I think traveling is a classroom. If you if you're not on a tour, you know, if you go on a tour, you go to specific places. It's good to be on a tour on certain destinations, but if you travel on your own, communicate with local people. You start with uh, research on where you're going. You start to realize that even if you're going to stargaze, you need to know the local culture, where to go, when to go, how to communicate. You learn about other languages. And it has been the greatest university to me mm. to to learn about um, other places of the planet. And as you go to these places, you realize that we are just one part of a larger human family. You know, we talk about this one family of humanity in many places. Um, you know, it's like a slogan for everybody. But in order to sense it, you have to travel and you have to be connected with these people in, in their own level. How solitary is it? I mean, if there's a if there's a 15 year old listening right now who has a dream to be an astronomer, it, it occurs to me that it's not like working on a factory floor with a bunch of other people, or or in a hospital, or playing in a band. You know, you're. It, it seems like it's very potentially even lonely work being a, an astronomer, being a stargazer. I, I know you're married now, but uh, is it is it lonely? Is it solitary? Well, it can be. Yes. <laughs> Just imagine, you know, this lifestyle. You, your life, your next uh, trip is based on a celestial conjunction or a comet appearing or a meteor shower or an eclipses. And then you have this birthday party you're going, the wedding ceremony of a family member. And exactly at the same time, there is a new comet or aurora borealis is erupting. So which one do you take? And if you're really... Uh, passionate about this, it's obvious that you're taking that one. So you you become unusual. That that's true. Uh, but then you are ex experiencing a unique life at the same time. You know, you are alone in a place which is very busy in daytime. That's true, solidarity. But then you experience something that most people don't experience. It's like going to an unseen cave. And you like to share that story with everyone else because natural night sky is no longer available to most pub public. It's it's the same sense as going to the top of a mountain, having this unique vista 
and then you capture it. You like to share it with the others. Although you are alone at that moment, but after you share it, then you have a sense of unity that you are bringing people together under one common interest and understanding. I think of the the idea of looking up at the sky as a romantic one. Are you a romantic? I am. <laughs> and that's how, in fact, um, my marriage form. <laughs> oh, really? You found a stargazer? Or, yes, uh, yes, we are both stargazers. My wife Shadi is um, is also very much into astronomy, and that's how how we met. Wow! Can I ask you how exactly you met? Were you actually sitting next to each other, looking through telescopes? Then you realized there was, no, was the person you want to marry next to you. Observatory in northern Tehran called Zafarania, and um, I was very young, eighteen, and but I was already teaching because there was not many. Um, teachers available for astronomy and I was very passionate and she was also um, a student at that observatory so we started a friendship later on we started in that caravanserai in the desert of um, a Kabir National Park Bahram Palace on the top of caravanserai we brought these group of students and in the early morning, I'm usually very alone with these groups because everybody is completely asleep. I'm still active and I'm going to you know, assemble, disassemble my cameras and telescopes. And she was the only one who came to me to help in the early morning and really freezing cold temperature. I said, oh, this is the girl who can stand my life. And that's that's was the beginning. I love that story. How could you not fall in love? You're out there in a deserted place looking at the sky together. It's it's fantastic. Um, Babak, you've become very popular on social media. What what do you find most interesting about the audience you have? Well, they're very global, quite international from everywhere around the world. Um, I do write in English on my social media. I'm fluent in Farsi and I have been an editor in Farsi. So that's not, not, not the question that I'm not capable of writing in Farsi. Um, I wrote books in Farsi. So, but because I'm part of National Geographic, uh, my platform needs to be in English to communicate with everyone in, in this field. And because of that, I have a very diverse group of people from everywhere. Some somebody contacted me today from Marshall Island. You know, it could be anywhere. Some scientist contacted me from Antarctica on a question. Um, and that's the most joy I receive because I see that there is a global audience there, but I also see that I can make an impact on, on my stories, especially on dark sky preservation, on values of natural nights and light pollution, uh, but also in general on how are on the values and beauties of night sky, because, you know, most people are completely unaware of that today. A final question to you. If somebody were to say to you, uh, I have an unlimited budget to fly to wherever you tell me to in the world to get the best view of the sky, whether it's through the naked eye or through a lens, where would you tell them to go? Well, I think I have a page, uh, com slash sky, And there they can download a map on Google Earth or there are also links to these um, light pollution maps. You can have a look and just find the nearest darkest sky area. It doesn't need to be across the planet. 
you know, of course, I will answer your question with the top stargazing destinations, but um, you don't need to travel that far. Okay. You know, we have places which are still dark and we have places which are predicted, protected to be dark mm -hmm. in the long term. And they're called dark sky designated sites on darkesky.org website slash places. You can see all these 250 plus locations around the world. Many of the national parks in the US and Canada, for example, are uh, darker sky places designated. Yeah. For example, Banff National Park in yeah. Alberta. Or um, here in the US, all the great national parks in the Southwest, Yosemite, Death Valley, Joshua Tree, all the five parks in Utah, they're darker sky designated. Um, and if you if you are somewhere outside of North America, there are still places you can find on the maps. Um, it doesn't need to be very far from cities, but it's important to be in high flat, high altitudes because altitude really helps to clear up the sky because the, the higher you go, there are less air mass to scatter the light. Therefore, there are less sky glow. I have seen, for example, the Milky Way from Mount Wilson it's inside Los Angeles. You know, when you're on top of Mount Wilson, you have 180 degrees of light in front of you. But because of the altitude difference, uh, you can barely see the Milky Way. Unfortunately, uh, um, you don't have that option in Toronto because uh, there is no high No, mountain. but it, it answers the question why I've been to, for example, Banff many times. Why, when we say the sky looks different there... Um, not only are we battling with the uh, light pollution in Toronto, but the, the altitude would be a lot lower than it would be in, in the Rocky Mountains, obviously. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes, altitude really makes a big difference. So say, example, in Iran, you know, uh, deserts in Kabir National Park is good, but deserts in Kerman are much better for stargazing because it's at much, much higher altitude. And it's the same for the best stargazing locations on the planet. Atacama Desert in Chile. It's usually number one because it's very dry. You have more than 300 nights of the year. Practically useful for astronomers. That's why many telescopes, huge telescopes are built in Atacama Desert. Second is uh, Hawaii. Um, again, because of the altitude on top of the volcanoes such as um, Haleakala or Mauna Kea. And then the third is uh, usually Canary Islands, uh, La Palma, where I'm huh going every year in May for my master class. Um, that's also home to another major observatory. Um, Outback Australia, because it's very dry and dark, there's not much light pollution at all. So these are usually the top destinations for stargazers. Clearly, and of course, many of the national parks in the U.S. Clearly a question you've been asked before, that, uh, or, or people love that question, where the stargazing. I, I was kind of, actually where I wanted to go with it was where, where you've had the most dramatic wow moment uh, in your life, uh, if, you can, if, there, if you can pick one. Well, the first one is usually the most memorable, and that was in the Alamut Valley of Iran. I went to this village called Ghazor Khan. It's a small village where uh, the iconic castle of assassins is still left there on top of a cat, on top of a rock um, known as the Eagle Rock. And we were just next to that rock. And that's also the place where the Persian astronomer Tusi was observing for several years before the Mongolians, uh, the Mongol, uh, Mongols attacked that area and managed to occupy the castle. And then he became astronomer for them. <laughs> Very interesting story. But 
um, 2C was observing from there and the sky was truly dark and that night I was observing with my friend Oshin Zakarian who is also a colleague here with the Word at Night program right now and group of villagers um, kids around us with our tiny telescope um, that was really sensational to me a second one I remember was in 2009 in in Nepal um, looking at Mount Everest from uh, Sagarmata National Park as we were hiking up to altitude wow. to see more clear sky that was after a two a two day hike we reached to the altitude that all these mountains were visible and the sky was crystal clear you know wow. the altitude really makes a big difference it is um what an education it is talking to you uh, and an inspiration as well i thank you so much for the time uh and and for the work you do and i can't wait to to chat again some sometime soon thank you so much for this today thank you Jim. thank you babak tafrashi in boston thank you so much for doing that this is full time for rook for today Thank you to all of you out there for listening along. He really is mind-bending in terms of what he brings to the imagination and the night sky. For all things Rook-related, rookmedia.com is where to find us. If you want to watch the interview you just heard, you can watch it at YouTube, at Rook Media, or on Instagram as well. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Roham, Bearded Omid, Thanks to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizunbashi. Bashi.